Well, good morning. Good to see you all here. And uh, I'm going to ask if you have your Bible, please take it and go to the book of Galatians with me, Galatians chapter 2. So you have opportunity to look again at sanctification and how this plays out in our lives as Christians. Much of what I'm going to say this morning is presupposing that you have already begun a relationship with Christ by faith in his son who died on the cross for your sins and has given you forgiveness uh, through a relationship with him. So I'm speaking primarily to Christians this morning. If you don't know Christ, uh, you, you need to and um, need to settle that matter immediately and and uh, this will be more relevant to you then in light of that. So the book of Galatians in chapter 2, as I'm talking, I have a hard time doing two things at once. Anybody have that problem? Okay, me too. So uh, there's a lot of scripture verses in our time, uh, in, in our session this morning. So I'm going to be, I'm not asking for volunteers. I might just call on you. Okay, so you're all are willing, right? You're all are willing to read scripture to the class this morning, I hope. Um, so I might just look at you and say, would you look that up or just go ahead and read that out when it's time? And I would be grateful for your participation in that way. All right. Well, we have embarked on our journey of a lifetime on the road to glory, haven't we? For some time, uh, for some of you, you've been on this road for some time. And uh, for others of you, maybe just beginning this road to glory. In any case, uh, you need to know that the path ahead of you in the spiritual walk is not through soft, grassy meadows and along peaceful, babbling brooks. The road by which your Lord has determined for you to reach glory is often a harrowing and dangerous and treacherous one, fraught with many dangers, toils, and snares. John Newton, the the author of our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, reminds us, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace that will lead us home. Uh, What a helpful reminder that it requires grace to uh, embark on this journey, and that it's not something that we embark on our self-effort and our own energy expended to get us along the way in in the Christian experience, but we rely entirely upon God's grace and his empowering work through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling Christ in our life. Uh, We become increasingly made into the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. So that journey imagery is meant to help us think through um, what our what our task is before us as a Christian. Many many teachers throughout history have uh, pictured the Christian life in terms of a quest or a journey. One of my favorites is uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, and if, I hope that you have a chance sometime in your busy lives to pick this book up and read it. It's incredibly rich theologically. Um, it's a theology and an analogy. <laughs> it's a story about a man who leaves the city of. Um, destruction, um, just burdened for his sin and for his soul, and uh, by the help and the aid of Christ and the Holy Spirit, he is led through many challenges and many experiences that eventually lead him to the celestial city, and uh, there's so much in there that uh, helps enlighten uh, the Christian life for you. Um, I've taught through it before for young people and uh, enjoyed it with them, but uh, that's not our task this morning, but I do encourage you and recommend that you read it. Um, did you know that the name Christians, the, the, that's the name that um, we were come to be known there in Acts uh, during the time when the Christian church at Antioch was getting established. The name Christian actually was affixed to us by our enemies. It was not something we self-identified by at the time. Um, instead, uh, it was given to us by our enemies, which was a term of derision. It was thought to, um, thought to be something that um, 
would bring shame upon us, having followed a crucified, a crucified man. And yet, uh, the, the, that's not really the term that the scriptures uses to refer to us. In fact, more times than any other, uh, uh, any other name, do you know what we're called in scripture? Saints. Over 60 times we're called saints. And that word saint has a, is a cognate relation, has a cognate relationship with the word sanctification. We're known as holy ones. So when the Apostle Paul or Peter or whoever it is that's writing to the church wants to pick out an endearing term for how he refers to the church of God, he calls them the saints, the holy ones, the ones who have been set apart and devoted to God and to Christ. And so that's an important way to conceive of yourself. You say, well, that's an interesting name since I don't currently now live completely pure. I don't currently live now in the experience of perfection. (laughs) I still daily wrestle with sin and I still struggle with impurities and the need for constant cleansing. And yet, Scripture refers to you by what you will be. And not only what you will be, but what you already are. And in the tension of that, you are to live, you are to become what you already are in Scripture and, and yeah, through, through, the, through the work of sanctification. So, whereas along, somewhere along the way, we, were, we allowed the Roman Catholic tradition to tell us that sainthood was a reference to the faithful ones who are now dead, instead, Scripture uses the term saint to refer to those faithful who practice a living faith having been justified and sanctified before God. In fact, the subject of our sanctification garners more attention than any other subject in Scripture. Um, it is the, uh, it, uh, every biblical writer gives this more attention than any other theological truth. Therefore, it should be the central preoccupation of, of every Christian. So we're fixated on what it means to endeavor to become like Christ. At least that's what we should be. However, the most... This most appropriate and Christ-oriented focus has been greatly displaced in our time. Churches today are not focused on this, this biblical doctrine of sanctification, but have substituted for something I like to call the self-improvement gospel. And if I'll show you a few of these here. Uh, many publications, if you go to the publications that uh, sit on your shelves at your book, local bookstores or on online retailers, you're going to find a great wealth of things peddled under the banner of Christian living or Christian life. All sanctification teaching, but all twisted to have a self-engrossed, self-focused, self-improving type of message. Um, uh, These books outsell good books on sanctification by a factor of like 10 to 1, or even in some cases 100 to 1. So in today's world, we're being waylaid and snared by a distorted and twisted teaching of self-improvement gospel, which promises a fulfilling life or intense happiness or a deeper connection with God, or the promise that God's supreme goal for you is that you realize that you're, that you're just affirmed, and that you're, that you're loved, and you're blessed, and you're treasured, and you're just special, and you're just precious, just the way you are. There is no call for change, no appeal for holiness, no call to slough off sin, or to renounce the pleasures of this world in these books. What is quite obvious is that these, alders, these authors don't hold a view of sanctification that sounds like the Apostle Paul or like the, the writers of the New Testament or the whole Bible for that matter. Uh, uh, the, the, the sanctification in the Bible calls us to self-denial. It causes us to dying to self, to humble, to humble dependence, to holy striving and Christ-imaging obedience. This kind of biblical sanctification would completely undermine the basic premise of all these books. How different is the statement of the Apostle Paul? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which you have opened before you. He says this, I, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Saint, you've got to beware of what is masquerading under the banner of sanctification in, in the church today. Much of it is nothing more than raw, unvarnished humanism. And it comes under the, under the titles of Christianity. We're susceptible to be caught, being caught up in this because it's attractive. It offers us a kind of alternative to sanctification. But it runs cross-grain against the teaching that, of the scriptures. This is why we have, to, um, we have a need to firmly grasp on how, we will actually, how to actually be what we already are in Christ Jesus. I love the old Puritans, the old preachers of the faith. They have so much to offer us yet that's relevant and uh, precious for us today. One of my favorites is J.C. Ryle. Uh, He wrote this about a cheap kind of Christianity, which almost sounds prophetic, given he wrote this hundreds of years ago. But he's speaking about the kind of Christianity that would come as a rival and alternative to the one that's the true. He says, there's a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have. And think, it that, and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody, requires no sacrifice, and which costs nothing and is worth nothing. That's a pretty valid indictment here of, of the kind of Christianity that we are often enticed to follow, isn't it? So we need to understand what is sanctification. Sanctification defined, let's come up with a couple definitions. Well, actually, I'm not coming up with these. These are ones I'm borrowing from other uh, theologians who are skilled at uh, compiling these for us. Um, sanctification, if we were to define it, is the process. It's a process. Every, by the way, every word of this just wants, makes me want to just launch into an exposition of that word because it's so rich here. Sanctification is a process in contrast to just an event. Okay? It's not just a single event that happens. It's a process over time by which God, not you, God, primarily, through his Holy Spirit, that's important. The means by which he affects this transformation, this sanctification in your life, is through the Holy Spirit. By setting us apart, that means making you different and distinct from the world. Okay, And he's doing that by cleansing, purifying, and making us a holy people for himself. He does this, how? Incrementally. You don't just have these... Um, you don't have these punctuated moments of growth in your life where you just jump from one stepstone to another plateau to another um, level of Christianity. It's a gradual growth process. Christians get so uh, hungering for experiences that, 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 that lead them to think that just if I can have this one emotional experience, if I can have this one event in my life, it would catapult me and kind of like shortcut fashion to a better and higher and more holy plane of living. And it's, it's a wrong way of thinking. So it's an incremental and progressive process of transformation. And the goal is not your happiness. It's not your vast delight and joy. Although joy will come <laughs> as a result of your sanctification. That's not the ultimate goal. The goal is that you be like, your, like the one who saved you. You image Christ, right? Therefore, sanctification involves the subduing of the power of sin... How do you do that? How do you fight sin in your life? That's going to be a subject of a later discussion. We'll talk maybe down the road a couple of weeks about how to, how to actually fight sin in your life. And in the bearing of fruit of obedience. So this is good. There's, uh, here's another one by Anthony Huckma. He says, we may define sanctification as the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. It's grace, grace-filled. 
right? Requires God's grace. Grace isn't just unmerited favor, by the way. That's our shorthand definition for grace. Grace isn't just favor, it's power. Power to affect the transformation. It gives you the, 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 the available resources to do what you could not otherwise do. God's grace is power, not just favor, okay? So God's gracious operation by his Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation. It's important. You don't just get to sit back and kick your heels up and ride it on out to glory in a passive state, let go and let God, as some might say. Uh, no, you are responsible. You actively participate in the process. Uh, that's why there's so many commands in the New Testament to uh, be holy and to pursue righteousness. Okay, And that this is uh, by which God delivers us as justified sinners from the pollution of sin, and he renews our entire nature according to the image of God. So you have to kind of see in this, man created in the, in the garden in the image of God, right? Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Man is there created in the image of God, but he falls from that state by an act of deliberate disobedience and sin. And it's, the image of God is not erased completely, but it's defaced. Okay? We are not what we, ought to, what we were created to be. And in sanctification, that's the renewal of what was lost in the garden. Okay? So it's a, re- it's a full circle for the Christian, restoring us back to what God intended for us to be. And that he enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Is that, is that sort of clear for you? I'm going to give you a quick defining characteristics of a biblical sanctification. And each of these se- uh, seven characteristics, you've got to have all seven of these ingredients to make for biblical sanctification. And if you don't understand these seven type of ingredients, I'm going to just distill this for you. Every one of these seven ingredients are going to be twisted or adapted or converted or changed or somehow manipulated in the vast spectrum of Christianity, Christian teaching about sanctification. So we don't want to get off on a counterfeit type sanctification. We want the real. And if we want the real, we've got to have these defining characteristics. Number one, we have to insist that it's a God-initiated process. You don't get to start off. You don't commence sanctification in your life. You can't do anything to begin that process. God is in full sovereign control of this process. It is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says. Also, um, it says in Philippians chapter 1 that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the work, that's, that's not you, that's him, he who began the work will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. According as he had chosen us before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Leviticus 21.8 says, I, the Lord, I am the one that sanctifies you. It's the God-initiated process. Number two, grace-induced performance. Grace-induced performance is a second factor. Sanctification teaching is not about you just digging deep and mustering up the strength and the grit to just do better in life. Just do better, do better, do better. Okay? And that, that is the teaching of self Involvement, self-participation, self-engrossment, okay? You cannot of yourself do this without the empowering uh, uh, work of God's grace causing you to perform. If it's just performance, sanctification without grace turns into legalism, okay? You're just doing good acts, just trying to do holy things without God's Holy Spirit and his power. You're not going to, you're going to get into a performance mentality, and that's deadly, dangerous for you. Okay? Legalism is a devastating and deadly uh, alternative to sanctification. Thirdly, it's a word-informed 
purification. Word and form. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth, right? The word is the means by which God changes you. That's important, okay? You are not going to transform by neglecting the scriptures, by setting this to the side, or just periodically hit and miss, open this book up and just try to like Russian roulette fashion, try to get something from it. You're not going to transform. It takes constant and steady exposure to the scriptures to transform you. And there's just no way around that. Okay? There's just no way. It's not intended to be another way around that. The word is your key to purifying your life. Okay? Believers aren't a believer-involved participation. Many denominations teach sanctification uh, involves you just surrendering yourself, making yourself available to God, presenting yourself before him, uh, just letting go, um, just becoming completely yielded and, and just surrendered, and you just end up in a state of passivity, and you think sanctification happens apart from your involvement. Like God's going to somehow body snatch and take you and just make you into what you should be. That's not how God works. Okay? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 tells us it's God working in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. God is using your will and that you work out that salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation, right? Uh, there's a big difference between working for your salvation and working it out. So there's a believer involved in particip- participation. There's a sin-impairing power. All those books I just showed you just a few minutes ago, their sanctification teaching, their version of it, has no sin-impairing power. Okay? That's not the focus of those books. Sanctification that doesn't um, attack the pollution of sin in your life and in your heart is not real sanctification. Sanctification is not making you more happy. It's making you more holy and therefore restraining the power of sin in your life. In fact, the power of sin has already been broken over you in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us very clearly that sin has no more dominion over you by virtue of the fact that Christ died on the cross to shatter the bondage of sin. So now sin no longer is your master. You serve sin instead as a free person capable of choosing to not serve him if you're a Christian. And so you need to learn how to recognize that. Reckon yourself dead unto sin and alive unto God and yield your members as instruments of righteousness. We'll have a top opportunity to talk about the tools for fighting sin later and sin-impairing power. And there's a Christ-imaging purpose. We looked at that, that you were predestined for this. This is your destiny, to image Christ. That's, that's why you exist. That's why you're breathing. That's why you're top side of this earth right now, is that you live among all the things that God has given you to do. And in those things that you do, as you do them, you are to bring to bear the image of Christ into the world in which God has placed you. Okay? That's a high, high calling for every Christian, isn't it? And then seventhly, there's a life. I hesitated with this one. This is what happens when you have um, alliteration. You start using words that don't really convey what you want to convey. Life-improving practice. Okay, I just told you, don't be a self, don't, self-improvement's a bad thing, right? Now I use the word improving in this sense. And you're like, okay, you just blew, my, blew me away. That's not what I'm, I don't want to confuse you here, Okay? By life-improving practice, I mean that there, this isn't just a theoretical truth that just happens in your mind and your heart, and you're just, your mind is affect. you have higher affections for God, you desire to be in heaven, you have these great, grand desires, and it has no effect upon the way you live. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a sanctification that pervades those areas and then works its way out into the lifestyle. Your life transforms. Maybe not immediately. Maybe not instantly. Sometimes it does, but not always. And it's gradually sanctified over time. And there's a life improvement. Okay? Uh, In the sense that with regard to how you're able to please God. Only after sanctification has worked, it is doing its work, can you be... Uh, fulfill the practice of pleasing God. Please God without God's sanctification work in your life, you're not, you can't do it. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, without what is, is, is impossible to please God? Without what? Faith. You can't do it without faith in Christ. And, and that, that faith there, I think, is faith in action. It's, remember, faith made visible? Hebrews chapter 11, it's all about faith made visible. It's not just, it's substance. It's not just theory. It's like, man, I believe God, so I'm going to build the ark. I believe God, so I'm going to leave my country and my kindred. I, I believe God, and therefore I'm going to face lions. I'm going to go into the fires. I'm going to stand for, for God because I have faith, faith that actively obeys. Okay? So, and it affects the way you live. There is no, there's no category of Christianity anywhere in the New Testament that says that someone can believe in Christ and remain completely the same kind of person that they were before they knew Christ. It's just that's not... A category that, that is known to the scriptures. So you got them all? Those seven things have got to be ingredients, and if any of them are manipulated, twisted, or ignored, you have defective sanctification, which we'll talk about down the road, the dangers of um, counterfeit sanctification, which is very a very threatening danger to the church today and to your life. So uh, then I have what's called halo beliefs, Halo beliefs that affect sanctification. By halo beliefs, I just mean these are doctrines that are closely associated with with uh, sanctification. And um, so, what you believe about these areas impact the rest of your sanctification theology. Number, for instance, do you believe that man has original sin, and that do you believe that his original sin can be completely plucked out of his life in the moment of sanctification? Some, some denominations teach that you can be erat- you can, that uh, when you get saved, it removes sin, root and branch, takes it all out, and that you live in a state of sinless perfection. And that, that teaching of original sin affects your understanding of sanctification. Do you believe that nature has dual nature? That he can be both, uh, he's like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing. He can live, have both in him at the same time, an old man and a new man. He can have them both cohabitating in the same person at the same time, like the devil on the shoulder and the angel on the other one, and he's just kind of at the whim of where he's going to choose to follow that day. That's a very common misconception of sanctification, and that ends up bleeding over into this teaching. Thirdly, do you believe that sin nature can be completely eradicated Okay, in this life? I believe it can be eradicated, but in the future glory state, right? Later, we will be all sinless in heaven. Um, can man be perfectible? Uh, do you believe that righteousness is infused into your life or do you believe that it's been imputed to your life? This is the difference between the Catholics and the Protestants. What do you think about righteousness? Uh, subjective experiences. How much authority do you give to your subjective experiences? How much emotion is required for you to feel before you are convinced that the truth of sanctification is at work in your life? Uh, I come from a tradition where there was a high bit of authority placed on emotion. Okay, that's why there was the 17 verses of 
just as I am, and there was the peals, and there was the tears, and there was the, the sing-songy voice, and the wind-sucking preacher that would get you all kind of, whoo, you know, get you all kind of moved. And Okay, I come from that tradition, and people place a high authority upon the emotional experiences associated with sanctification instead of the objective revelation of God. Now, which, which, where does your confidence lie in? Your emotions, which change from day to day, depending on what can... How you, what you ate last night and what you got, how you felt when you got up this morning? Or do you depend, are you convinced of the objective revelation of God's own word, the God who cannot lie, revealing truth to you? Okay? And free will. Okay? What you believe about free will is going to impact how you think about sanctification. Do you have the innate ability just to simply choose to not sin? Okay? Can you just stop sinning? If I got up here and just say, stop sinning, just quit. Right now, just choose to do it. And you say, well, I tried that. <laughs> it's not working so well, okay? I love my, my favorite, one of my favorite teachers, preachers is the old guy, Augustus Toplady. I love this. This is so true. He says, a man's free will cannot save him even of a toothache or a sore finger. Man, that finger really hurts. Man, my tooth is killing me. I just, I choose not to feel the pain. Uh, is how that going to work for you, Right? And yet he madly thinks it's going to cure, has the power to cure his soul. Your free will is not going to help you one bit in, in, in trying to stop sinning. You need something, a more powerful principle at work in your life besides your free choice. Okay? So that's not a helpful concept. We'll talk about that later. And in fact, I think that can be um, an alternative way of end running true sanctification, which God is trying to accomplish in your life. Man is nothing, George Whitfield said. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven until God works in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is how uh, preachers used to preach, and this is the truth received by God's people through many, many generations. Hard truth, difficult to reckon, reckon with, but you've got to align your understanding of what God's doing in conformity and calibration with these truths. Otherwise, you're going to get discouraged in your sanctification. Okay, survey of the doctrine of sanctification. Quickly, I'm going to, I've completely abandoned my, my written notes here, so <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm just going to yell at you and try to preach. Say? That was your free will to do. That was my free will, yeah. I freely chose to do that, but God ordained that to happen somehow, so, so you reckon that both are true, both are right, so yes, as a saved person, by the way, as a saved person, regenerated, or having been regenerated and sanctified in Christ... If Christ has made you free, then you're free indeed. You have freedom of will post-salvation when Christ saves you, but not before. Okay? You're, before then, you're the servant of sin. You're the slave of sin. After Christ made you free, then you're free. Okay? Don't get that mixed up. So yes, we have free will as Christians. Um, and, uh, we, and we have a sort of free will before. I could explain that later. But the, catal- <laughs> the catalyst of sanctification... Okay, these are the basic four battlegrounds. I use these as four basic areas, which in two weeks from now, I'd like to kind of cover a spectrum of like, where are the six major views of sanctification, how they're taught across the denominations of Christianity. We'll look at Wesleyanism, we'll look at uh, Reformed theology, we'll look at uh, our Augustinian um, dispensationalism, we'll look at uh, Methodism, Pentecostalism, and Roman Catholicism, some other things. And we'll just look at quickly and sketch a view, just a brief overview of how sanctification is taught. And every one of them will, di- will diverge on these four battlegrounds. Okay? 
So we need to have a good biblical reference point to be able to engage that, right? Number one, the catalyst of sanctification. What commences your sanctification? When does sanctification in the believer's life actually begin? What is the impetus behind sanctification? Is is my sanctification something for which I must wait for? Should I, I come from from a tradition like this where uh, I want to be sanctified. God, I want to be holy. So I was taught that I need to wait until God does a work in my life to help empower me for, for the uh, for the act of consecration and for the ability to perform holy things before him. I need to wait for some supernatural work of God to, to accomplish these things, to occur. Now, I'm already saved at this point, but I have to somehow wait on God to now deliver me the resources that I need to be a successful and thriving, sanctified Christian. God, I'm in a waiting state. God is the one who's kind of delaying. He's kind of He's got poor timing, perhaps. I don't know here. But somehow I'm not getting what I need to prepare to, to be able to do this. So do I need to prepare myself in anticipation? Do I have to have a special baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do I have to have a fresh filling? Uh, sometimes the language is I need a fresh anointing from, Holy, from the Holy Spirit. Somehow I'm waiting on God to deliver something that I need in order to live a holy life. Okay? Or I ask myself, what is God waiting for? Does he need me to ready myself somehow to receive this blessing? Do I have to surrender myself? Do I have to participate in some rite of consecration or perhaps walk an aisle, tarry long in the altar? Should I simply just let go and let God, as I've heard explained? Or can someone simply just decide to dispense with all that? I'm just going to initiate the work on my own. I'm just going to take it up in my own hands and I'm just going to um, just resolve I am resolved no longer to linger. You know, we sing those songs. We sing about our resolve and our will and our determination, self-determination to the task of making ourselves holy. Do I need to rededicate myself to him? And then next week after I fail, do I have to rededicate myself again and rededicate again and again and again? And there's these patterns that come about of rededication. Um, sure, so these are practical questions that we ask ourselves about how God begins the undertaking of us making us sanctified and these dilemmas that perplex us and require biblical answers. And depending on what church you happen to be sitting in when you encounter these questions, you're going to get vastly diverse answers for these questions. Uh, Before we look at what solutions are commonly offered, we should first examine what the scripture has to say and how sanctification actually commences or begins. They're dropping like flies. Everybody's <laughs> Okay, so I, I get it. Um, I'll try to make it quick. First of all, it's helpful for you to understand Scripture says that the initial cause of your sanctification is not you. Thank the Lord that none of our sanctification rests upon us. Right? Not a bit of it. It doesn't rest fundamentally upon our work. Uh, the catalyst of our sanctification, I'm going to break it down into first an initial cause and then in the initial event. We'll look at these two together. I only plan to get through two of those that, four that you just saw, so the other two are coming. Uh, number one, the catalyst of sanctification. The, the scripture tells us that there's an initial... Did I write initial event there? Sorry, this should say cause. Initial cause of your sanctification. Initial cause of your sanctification. First of all, it originates in, in the Trinity. The Father enacts your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. You wonder, you know, God, why aren't you delivering the power that I need to get victory over sin? Well, listen, you're asking the wrong question. It's already in God's will and decree that you be sanctified. 
Why are we asking God for something he already has given, right? He's already have it, given it, okay? Uh, Philippians, or 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says that God is going to preserve your body, your soul, and your spirit blameless unto the day of, the day of his return, unto the day of his coming. Philippians 2.13, I've already said this, that he is, is him who works in us. The Father does to work and to do the work and to will of his good pleasure. It's empowered by the Son. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is, is accomplishing the work in my life that needs to be done. So that when we get to the end of the day and we do something great and nice, and we do something that brings God glory, and they say, man, you did a great job, brother so-and-so. You did a wonderful job, sister such-and-such. You don't say, man, you're right. Thank you very much. Pack myself on the back. And it took a lot of work. And you say, oh, glory to God. Christ in me is all I can say. Christ in me. He's the one who gets the great glory. It's affected by the Holy Spirit. That means it is secured by the Holy Spirit of God. It is accomplished by that. He sees to it that it gets done. Okay? Lots of scripture verses there that we will look at throughout the course of our study. And then lastly, it does engage the believer. Okay, so there because of these things, because of the first three causes, this fourth one is absolutely possible. Okay, um, you're, you will not be sanctified if you do not put forth the effort to be obedient, to be in the Word, to be praying, to use the means of sanctification in God's grace that He has made available to you. So don't think that you can just check out. It's a responsible participation, remember? Uh, John Murray says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. In other words, there's a two actions happening concurrently here. God's working and we are working. Don't have one without the other. Neither is the relation one of cooperation, as if God's just doing a part, he does his part and we do our part. You heard that said before? No, that's not how it's working here. Strictly one of cooperation. That's not the idea in scriptures. As though we're doing ours and he, in conjunction and coordination of both, produces the required result. Instead, God works in us and we also work. But that relationship is because God works, we work. So important to keep that in mind. Because God's working, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. So we have the initial cause of our sanctification we also have what's called the initial event of our sanctification. Okay, this might be, and depending on where you're sitting and what church you're sitting in this morning, this is the focus of sanctification teaching for most denominations. Okay, if you're coming from the tradition I came from, which is an independent fundamental Baptist church in rural Pennsylvania, influenced by Methodism and Keswick teaching and all of the factors of revivalism, and, and in New York State where revivalism was big. You're thinking, man, what I need is a crisis of faith. I just need to have that moment where I'm so wrestling with God and I'm so troubled by my sin and I'm just so worked up emotionally with God that I know that I cannot do this of myself and I just throw myself on, at the mercy of God and I just wait for an infusion of God's power and I'm going to overcome this. That's the crisis of faith view. It's a painful experience in a Christian's life when he begins to doubt his or her beliefs. It causes grief and confusion for the individual, as well as a sense of disconnection from God. That's what's required for you to be sanctified. You've got to first come to the end of yourself and say, that's it. I just need God. And it has the show of spirituality, doesn't it? It, sh- it looks spiritual. Man, I, I'm just done. 
And is there a sense in which there's some truth in this embedded somewhat that you should be humble and you recognize your need for Christ? And there's some questioning going on. I recognize that. But this crisis of faith is an event which sparks off and ignites an, a work of God. That this is the catalyst of your sanctification. That's often held by Catholicism, revivalism, and new, the new measures theology of Charles Finney. There's also this other idea, the second definite work of God's grace. That is to say that what you need is just like you had a powerful experience of when uh, you got rebirthed. It was a powerful experience. You need a, something like that on the order of like a second birth again. You need like a be born again again kind of thing. You need a definite work of God's grace. Sometimes called it's a second blessing or a second work or entire sanctification. And this is held by Methodism, holiness, and Keswickism. Or you need a baptism, a filling, an anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is held by most Pentecostal or holiness or charismatic assemblies. All right, so there's going to be some suggestions about how to go about this. Instead, I think the correct one is number four, justification, which I will tell you about next week. So justification, you have some important things that you need to understand. When you were justified, when you came to Christ by faith, that work immediately commences. It's separate from justification, but it's inseparably linked with it. You're not waiting on a second baptism, another filling of the Holy Ghost, another crisis of faith. You've got all that you need to live a holy and successful Christian life at the moment of your salvation. You understand that? God's grace is sufficient for your growth in him. And that happens in complete connection with your justification. Next week, we're going to pick up right there briefly uh, collapse this and next week I really want to talk about practical stuff like okay so this is all true how do I change how do I actually change I, I, I need to have some tools that are effective tools to help me transform some practices and sinful activities that are going on in my life and uh, given all of this is true and this is all in the sub this is all in the background these truths have practical implications for how you, how you live your Christian life. Father, thank you for the time. I pray that you bless our service. Be with Pastor Jeff as he once again opens the word and preaches to us. And help us to be an encourager as he will exhort us to be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.